0: This is the final episode in a three-part series. Please listen to part one, An Unidentified Man, and part two, Son of Nashville, before you begin this episode. This episode contains brief discussion of violence and autopsy. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line.
1: What if this was your son and he was missing and someone mishandled his case and it turned out that he was murdered and it took you 15 years to find out? How, how would you feel? What would you want done Put yourself in, in our shoes.
0: Last time on The Fall Line, we learned about the life and the cases of Lorian Nicholson, an 18-year-old from Nashville, Tennessee. Lorian disappeared on April 12, 1998. He went missing one day before the body of a young Black male, matching Lorian's own description, was found, murdered, and wrapped in a burning rug. That discovery came on April 13th. Lurian's mother filed a missing persons report on April 15th. The case was then closed five days later by exception. In this instance, that meant that a phone call reporting Lurian is having returned to his home. But he hadn't. His family was unaware of the case closure. In fact, his sisters, Amira and Candace, didn't know a report was filed in the first place. They hadn't heard about the victim found on April 13th, who was eventually buried under the name of John Doe 19. They just thought that their brother was gone, where they didn't know. And as they came of age, they began to look for him themselves. Through their own investigation, first finding paperwork and then employing the still-developing internet, they tracked down a number of things. Their finds included the incident report filed by the responding officer on the day Lorion's mother called in his disappearance. But this paperwork didn't include everything. It was missing a sheet that recorded the follow-up, which marked the cases closed. Eventually, Amira and Candace located and spoke to every official listed on that form. But it wasn't until 2012 that they received a second vital document, the sheet that showed that a woman had called Metro Nashville Police on April 20th. That woman, who identified herself as Pauline Venable, told officers that Lerion had returned home. The case was summarily closed by exception. No one visited Lerion's home to assure he had returned. And though Lerion was an adult, he was also diagnosed with schizophrenia and would, or should, have been considered part of a vulnerable population. But the case was closed and Pauline Venable has since passed away. When Candace and Amira found out more about this woman, who they'd never heard of, they found the situation to be increasingly bizarre. Pauline Venable wasn't likely to have had any information in the first place. She was not the kind of close friend who might act on the family's behalf. When we spoke to Lorian's sister, Candace, she reflected on the information and what it might really mean. One
1: thing is about the person who called in. I I honestly don't believe that it was this old disabled woman that called in. I think it was someone close to my brother or close to someone who knows about what happened for them to call in and say that he was home and okay. Because that's the only logical thing is that, okay... It had to have been someone who was aware that there was even a missing persons report filed for them to be able to call in. And they had to know that he was no longer that he was deceased or why else would they call in? They wanted the case closed so that they wouldn't put two and two together because the events were so close together Um, Again, as far as the timeline, I just want to make sure that the timeline is set, that the body was found on April 13th, the missing persons report was filed on the 15th, and it was closed on the 20th.
2: And to your knowledge, Lorian did not have a close relationship with this woman? No, not at all. And so she would not have had any kind of vested interest in... Him or his case? No, not to my knowledge.
1: My gut feeling is that it was not her.
0: Candace and Amira believe that someone, and maybe more than one someone, knew that Lorien's mother had filed the report and wanted to be sure that it wasn't followed up on. They couldn't have planned for the chaos that began that week when a tornado struck downtown Nashville, but... It was the perfect opportunity to cover their tracks. And so, John Doe 19's case sat open, cold after 2001, and Lorian Nicholson, vulnerable because of age and mental health issues, he was still missing. After Candace and Amira spoke to cold case detectives, Lorian's case was reopened. But the sisters still push forward with their own investigations. And in 2012, that included using search engines and social media. After seeing a story about unidentified bodies at the local morgue, Candace called to ask if any could be Lorian. She was told that none of the decedents matched her brother's stats, but with that idea in mind, Candace began a new internet search, one that led her to a nascent government website called NamUs.
1: So I typed in, you know, unidentified bodies for, um, or unclaimed bodies on Google and, this website came up, and it was Namus. I put in his description um, and around the time that he went missing, and it was only two, two matches. And when I saw the the match that eventually became him, I just I I, I knew that that was him. I I called Amira because um, it led me to the Nashville.gov site that had the original post of when they found the body. And I asked her what type of jacket did she last see him in? Um, because when, the last time I saw him, it was like he had on a, a leather jacket, I believe. and um, But when he was found, it was a different type of jacket and a, I believe it was a pullover. And she said that that was the type of clothing that he was wearing around the last time that she saw him and um, something in me just just knew um, I just immediately broke down um, I was like this this is this is our brother this is him and so it was um, late at night because again this would occur and I would stay up all night and then go to work the next morning and so um, I didn't sleep. That night, I waited until it was um, time for the medical examiner's office to open, and because Amira is his full blood sister, then I had her call and um, and tell them that we believe that this unidentified person was our brother.
0: Amira, Lorian's baby sister, described the feeling of going around in circles, seeking information on Lorian. Only to run into the same roadblocks. They'd begun to call psychiatric hospitals again with no luck, and it seemed like there was no solution in sight. But then she got Candace's call and an email link from her sister. It led to a Namus listing. That was on September 26, 2012.
3: Candace and I, until we, um, until Candace, Candace found the site Namus. Mm-hmm. Um all right and she started putting in his demographics the relative time that that he went missing and she got a hit and um you know I just felt like a chill come over me I'm like I think that's him and she's like no don't say that cuz she's so, she's like more optimistic than I am but I just know I just know what I feel and and sometimes you can't ignore what you feel, no matter how hard you try, you know, sometimes things just are what they are. Um, and I was like, I think that's him. We reached out or she was like, well, you call, you know, because you have more connections than I do. So you call and see what happens. So I called and I, um, I believe it was the Tennessee, Department of Investigation, maybe. I'm not sure, but I called the number. And I was like, well, you know, my sister and I, we were going through your database, and we think we may have found a hit on, on these remains of someone who um, who was burned in 1998. And she's like, the lady was like, okay, um, what's your name and number? So I gave her my name and number, and she was like, okay, so I'll have someone to call you back. And Detective Chad Holman called. I guess he was a cold case detective um, at the time. And he was um, over that program. And so I just kind of explained to him. He was like, why do you think this is your brother? So I just kind of explained to him all the things that we went through. um, And I told him about the missing persons report.
0: Candace and Amira both explained what happened next from their own perspectives
1: from what Amira tells me which she can tell you more about it but they they were helpful um in taking the information and contacting the cold case division and um you know doing everything to lead up to getting the DNA from his mother um Amira did ask if she was able to give DNA um to To try and identify him, but they said it would be best if it came from the mother.
0: Lorian's mother did take a DNA test. And according to Brian Haas of the Tennessean, that sample was compared to one that had been retained from John Doe 19 and stored by Metro Nashville police. No exhumation was necessary. In March of 2013, the family got confirmation Lorian Nathaniel Nicholson was interred at Bordeaux Cemetery. In plot number 555, Brian Haas reported that in May of 2013, a new marker bearing Lorian's name was put into place. His mother was in attendance. So there was one case closed in that John Doe 19 was identified. But that left Lorian Nicholson, a missing person, reclassified as a homicide victim. And the trails leading to his killers were 15 years cold. We've covered a lot of cases, but this is the first time that it can be said unequivocally that a family member solved a crime. Two sisters went looking for their brother, and they found him. When we spoke to retired Detective Larry Flair, he wanted to be sure that we highlighted Amira and Candace's work. He was not involved in the missing persons case, so he had no information about it being closed. Rather, he worked the first few months of John Doe 19's case. He was on the scene that morning on Mary Street when the body was discovered. But he did speak to Candace years later, and he'd heard the details of what Sheen and Mira accomplished.
3: They were, well, they were not only instrumental, but probably one of the biggest reasons that this, this individual was identified by her diligently, you know, researching. He probably would not have been identified, if it had not been for the diligent efforts that uh, the family put forward in going back into research, research, research.
0: Candace's database searches were key. And without the cases having been entered into NamUs, it wouldn't have been possible. And that's still an issue today. There are missing and unidentified people who are not on the website. But John Doe 19 was.
2: When it occurred to you that you had just solved your brother's case, can you talk about some of the feelings that you were having? Um, I was devastated. I mean, it It
1: wasn't any, it wasn't a joyful occasion. I mean, it was mixed emotions. It was like, finally, you know, I have something that the police can can't ignore. We were able to get the full report and um that just made me angry. So the most prevalent feeling that I had was was just anger.
2: Can you talk about um the things that you were angry about with your brother's case and how it was handled? Their excuse was that there was a
1: tornado on April 16th. So three days after the murder, the day after the missing persons um, report was filed, there was a tornado and there was limited resources is what we were told for police to go to the home to check, to, to do a welfare check and make sure that he was there. That's that's not, I mean, we waited a whole 15 years before we found out what happened to my brother. And that was due to the police, not to the police mishandling the missing persons case. Now, I'm, I'm not a detective, you know, I'm, I'm just a person who's trying to get justice for her brother. So I, I just think of things that wouldn't only make sense to do, you know? Um, that's why I want the file to see exactly what was done. I mean, I've even, me myself a Amira, we've located the officer who took the missing persons report. I've talked to her. She's now a captain on the domestic violence unit um, just to see if she recalled anything, which I know it was 22 years ago. So, I mean, this was just a report that she took. So, um, we tracked down the officer who closed the report. And what he told us was that there, the page in the missing persons report that he filled out is a supplement report. And he said that there should be more information, um, which is called an activity sheet. He said that he would have filled out an activity sheet that showed, um, what he actually did, how he came in contact with the person who called in. Whether it was a message that was left for him to call her or if she just called in and, and got to speak with him, um, he's stating that there's missing pieces to this missing person's report. Mm. The bottom line, regardless of of what is missing from the report, you did not confirm that this person was alive mm-hmm. that that's the one thing that you did not do so I don't I don't really care about an activity log um, he said that there had been some sort of confirmation well no there was no confirmation because he was deceased already so I we tracked down the original detective that had the case um, because his name was listed in one of the articles that we located and he said that you know, if we ever need anything that he would answer our calls night or day, um, if we ever think of any other question. So I believe if he had been and I'm I'm just gonna be blunt, if he had been um a missing college student of a different race, um, that was probably a female, if he didn't come from a low income neighborhood you know i feel like it would have been handled differently if he was a a a young white girl from brentwood then it would have been all over the news that she was missing but because he he wasn't and i feel like he was just a throwaway to the police it was stated in the missing persons report that he may have been a danger to him himself because he was off of his medication. If he wasn't already murdered, if they would have located him because of of that in the police report, he could have been, you know, treated as a threat and possibly shot or, you know, if he ran, you know, it, anything could have happened at that point. Um, if he wasn't already deceased from what we've been told we have no recourse because most of the the officers that were handling the case have retired at this point so there's not much that can be done at this point so it's just like it's just a loss we're, we've are we just taken loss after loss after loss we've been working and working hard, trying to just gather information ourselves, um, even though the case is actively being worked. That's what we're being told.
0: In the spring of 2020, we communicated with the Metro Nashville Police Department via email. Although we were unable to arrange a formal interview, the head of the Cold Case Investigation Unit Provided answers to some of our questions. Other news outlets, like the Tennessean, have interviewed past and present detectives about the tornado and its effect on the investigations. We've shared some of this with you over the past two episodes. But for our show, we primarily wanted to know more about what could be done now what evidence still exists, what leads can be followed, what's been reviewed, retested, and attempted. Through the public information officer, Detective Charles Robinson sent answers to our producer. And there's information there that adds important detail to what we know about the Ryan's case. First and foremost, we wanted to know if samples from the burned carpet had been retained. After all, in 1998, DNA technology was very new. Detective Robinson indicated that the carpet samples are indeed on file, which is hopeful but he did not indicate if further testing had been done. He also gave us a new piece of information that we have not previously seen coverage of in this case. In 1998, officers made an important discovery at the scene of the crime down on Mary Street. At the scene, officers had recovered a pager. In his email, Detective Robinson refers to persons of interest and possible suspects by initials only. We don't know everything that was done with the pager that was found prior to 2013, though retired Detective Larry Flair told us that it had been an important clue and that they've been led to a number of locations that helped them to identify persons of interest in the case. Those individuals had left the city, though, and they couldn't be located in 1998. As Detective Flair left the Homicide Squad that July, he didn't have information regarding what came after. But Detective Robinson was able to describe more recent developments. Quote, In 2013, now-retired Detective Satterfield and I traveled to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to interview T.H. about her pager that was found in the crime scene. She admitted she'd purchased the pager for a black male. She stated they were involved in a brief sexual relationship. She said the black male came to Cedar Rapids from Chicago, but she couldn't remember his name. Some months later, she finally said his name was A.C. A.C. has not been located. According to Lorian's sisters, there are a number of people tied together by T.H. and A.C., people who used to live in Nashville. Candace and Amira now have a good working relationship with the current detective on Lorian's case, and so protecting certain information is important. But we can tell you that his sisters don't know these individuals, or why they might have had involvement in Lorian's death. Lorian wasn't involved in any conflicts, not that Candace and Amira know of. He wasn't engaged in or subject to any high-risk behavior, unless we count walking. He walked where he needed to go, just like thousands of other people in Nashville. And despite mention of marijuana on his missing persons report, Amira told us that Larian's talk screen came back clean for narcotics. Amira also added that he was very unlikely to have been involved in drug activity. Larian left his home on a Sunday afternoon, in daylight, and may have been heading to his uncle's house on Jefferson Street. If so, he likely would have taken a shortcut that involved crossing between a few houses. Could something have happened to him there? If not, where was he when he was struck hard enough in the head to be killed? We know that his body was moved from the crime scene. That and the fire are clear signs that the killer or killers wanted to destroy evidence and create distance between themselves and the victim. There have been a few small studies on post-mortem burning of a victim, though much of the available literature relates to home arson. Those papers that do exist, though, they point toward a connection between the fire, evidence, destruction, and a relationship between victim and killer. Could Lorian have known the assailants and why would he have been a target? Candace and Amira can't know how Lorian was feeling that day in April, home from Job Corps with a near miss score on the GED. But Amira said that he was worried about her, about everything. He wanted to take care of his mother. He'd lost the release of running track and the support of the mentorship programs that he'd attended while still in high school. As we mentioned last episode, we don't have official verification of Larian's diagnosis or knowledge of what medicine he was prescribed or how consistently he took it. If he was indeed living with schizophrenia, he would be at a higher risk as the target of crime. Study after study has borne that out. And if he was experiencing symptoms, his risk would have been even higher. Now... For Candace and Amira, April 13th is a difficult anniversary, just like Lorian's birthday on October 6th. His sisters mull over what the last 22 years might have brought him, had he been given the chance.
2: Do you sometimes think about what your relationship would be like with him if he was still here today?
1: All the time. I feel like if he did truly have a a mental disorder, then that would be something that we would have gotten him help for. Um, I would have done when I became of age, you know, and was able to get my own apartment or, um, you know, my own home, then I would have made sure that he was okay. And I know Amira feels the same way. Like he would have been well taken care of, um, the thing that I think about now is even though he's deceased, I just hope that he knows how much we love him and that we're working hard to I'm sorry. That we're working hard to find out whoever who the monster is that was able to do this to him and we're not gonna stop until until we figure it out. Yes. He was the only brother that I had.
2: Can I um, take a break for a second? Absolutely.
0: For her part, Amira reflected on how her brother's disappearance strained family relationships and how her view of parenthood has been shaped by his loss.
2: Can you talk about what having this, having Lorian's case and in your family has changed you as a person and a mother?
3: There's, there's a lot of tension around the subject. Um, people talk about it, but they only talk about it, you know, with me and amongst each other because my mom gets so upset and how it's changed the way that, that I deal with my children. For one, I just have to say I'm a different kind of parent That my mom was. I've never done drugs. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I work. I take care of my children and I show them love, you know, every day. But I'm very careful about the company that I keep. I'm very picky about the company that I allow my older daughters to keep. And, you know, it's just, it's different. I don't, I don't, I don't want them around people who give an obvious notion that, that they could do harm to them. I'm very cautious. And they're girls, so you have to be. People should be cautious with their boys, too, because they're influenced by their friends.
0: Amira and Candace have been affected in ways that they can articulate and ways that they can't. But Lorian's disappearance and the 2013 confirmation of his death have turned his sisters, more than anything, into advocates.
2: Of course, primarily the story is about your brother, but it's also about you, too, because we um, see all sorts of families and families are constantly trying to get the word out and grieving and all that. But it's very rare that we see, you know, two family members that essentially turn themselves into detectives on the part of their family member. Yeah, we loved him. For 10 years everything you've been doing we loved him we loved him
0: now what candace and amira need is simple they want Lorian's story spread and they want local residents to come forward with information lots of people lived in Lorian's north nashville neighborhood which sat so close to jefferson road and all the r&b clubs where little richard once played They want people from that neighborhood who recognize aspects of this story, the pager, or maybe the initials of the persons of interest, to step up and say something. It was a clear, bright Sunday afternoon in Nashville. People would have been outside. Someone out there, they should have seen something.
1: Anyone who was around the neighborhood that possibly saw him around that time or spoke with him or knew of anyone that was in the neighborhood that was up to no good, you know, or just any, anything that they can recall, like all of his friends. You know, I, I want them to contact the detective to speak with th- him about the last time they remember seeing him, what he was talking about, what he may have been doing. I have the autopsy report and the medical examiner confirmed it at that time when he was identified that there were no drugs in his system at all. So he he wasn't on drugs, which I think, you know, was another thing that, stop the police from actually, you know, looking into it is because of that statement as well. Um, The
2: area that he was found in was sort of associated with some drug use. Yes. So do you feel like he may have gotten sort of lumped into that category of mm -hmm. illegal activity just by nature of where he was found?
1: I do believe that had some, some bearing on it as well. Um, because the way that they described that area, it was known for prostitution and drug use. Um, but that's not anywhere that he hung out. So, I mean, it's right off of one of the main streets that if he was walking home, then from anywhere or, um, maybe getting something to eat there, there's a lot of places around that area Um, It's right behind the barbecue place. So, I mean, it could have been anything. But someone would have to know the area to know that they could dump a body in that area and and not be found out while they're doing it. Because it was right under the interstate and at a dead end. So... They had to be familiar with the area and and what went on in that area, for them to know that would be a, a place that they could do that. Because you had to, and I hate to think about what he went through, but they wrapped him in a carpet and set him on fire. They were able to do all of that in that area at you know late at night without anyone saying or doing anything
2: do you think there may have been witnesses who did not come forward at that time but would have seen or known that something was going on in that area i do believe that
1: there's someone out there that that knows what happened and may be afraid to say or maybe they just don't care because it's not their family member, you know? So I just want anyone at that time who may have been around Mary Street, um, the, the people who called in, because um, I do have um, a news article where there was a call to Metro about a car that they had saw and, um, and they saw the, the body burning. So I would like for them to be, you know, re-interviewed about what, what it is exactly that they saw, or, I mean, I'm trying myself to get my hands on the, the reports from when he was found and, you know, what was actually done. And Amira had this to add.
3: I hope that they would remember something, remember seeing something, remember hearing something. And it just, you know, strikes a nerve or, or you know, makes them come to an epiphany. And that aha moment, that's what this was. And they just go to the police and share the information. Because I don't think, um, I don't know. I believe it happened in the wee hours of the morning where in the community that that they believe that the murder took place in, it was an older community and it still is like a lot of older elderly people live there so anybody who may have had any information is you know, unfortunately probably not alive anymore Um, anybody who may have heard something but older people go to bed, they go to bed early, most of them you know, so I'm just hoping that If someone remembers anything, seeing anything weird, hearing anything, that they just, you know, call the Crime Stoppers or the Cold Case Department unit and and share it. Because you just never know. It could be the the smallest, most simple thing that can break a case wide open. You know? So that's what I'm hoping for. I want to know who did this to him. Because I'll probably never know why. They'll probably never say why. It was probably nothing, you know, just somebody doing something just to be doing it. But I want to know who did it. I want to know who's responsible.
0: If you have any information concerning the homicide of Lorian Nicholson or persons of interest mentioned in this podcast, please call the Metro Nashville Police Department Cold Case Division at six one five eight six two seven three two nine. You can also call Crime Stoppers at 615-74-CRIME. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Research assistants are Kim Fritz, Jessica Ann, Lex Weathers, and Brian Waters. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. You can find Fall Line merchandise in the Exactly Right Podswag store.